So this week we are continuing our series on the seven signs and miracles in the gospel of John. Last week, we read the account of the first sign that's in the Gospel of John. It's in chapter 2, and it is the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine. I'm sure that even if you weren't here last week, you know that story, right? Jesus finds himself at a wedding. They run out of wine. And what does my man do? He turns a bunch of water into a bunch of wine so that the party can keep going. This week... We're in chapter 4, still in the Gospel of John, where we find the second sign that Jesus does. And so just, just a refresher, right? This series, we're going through the seven signs and miracles in the Gospel of John, because the reason John organizes his Gospel this way is to slowly but surely reveal to us as the reader who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. So every week, that's going to be our focus. What does this sign reveal to us about who Jesus is, what Jesus has come to do, and perhaps who Jesus is calling us to be? So this week, we're in chapter 4. We're going to look at the second sign that we have in the Gospel of John. Jesus finds himself back in the same place. He's back in Cana, but this time he's talking to a royal official. So let's read it first, and then we'll kind of start to, to pick it apart and figure out where we're going to go with it this morning. So we're in John 4, verses 46 to 54. Then he, Jesus, then he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had changed water into wine. Now there was a royal official whose son lay ill in Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you see the signs and the wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my little boy dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him and started on his way. As he was going down, his slaves met him and told him that his child was alive. So he asked them the hour when the child began to recover, and they said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left. The father realized that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he himself believed, along with his whole household. Now this was the second sign that Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. We say together, thanks be to God. The royal official approaches Jesus because his son is sick. And you know that this royal official is, is pretty desperate because when he hears that Jesus is back in Galilee, he makes a four-day walk from Capernaum all the way to Cana just because he hears that Jesus could be, might be back in town. Clearly, this royal official believes that there is some sort of power that resides in Jesus that he's not going to be able to find anywhere else. And Jesus, really similar to last week, if you remember, expresses a little bit of hesitancy when he initially gets the request. Remember last week, Mary says, son, we're out of wine. And Jesus says, I don't really think that's our problem. 
Here, the royal official comes and says, sir, my son is sick. And Jesus' response is, unless you see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. It's just interesting, right? You get that same sense of hesitancy from Jesus in both of these stories. The official keeps going. He keeps begging for the life of his son because, you know, he knows that Jesus is his last hope, right? He doesn't have a whole lot of time remaining. And then Jesus gives in, doesn't he? He tells the man to go and that his son will live. And the man believes. Did you notice that? The man believes. And then he starts his journey back home. Later on, when he's closer to home, his slaves meet him what seems like halfway and tell him that his child is alive. Can't you picture that? The the child starts to recover. And one of the slaves says, you have to go tell him. You have to go tell him that his son is recovering. So they start the journey and end up meeting in the middle to tell him that his son is better. And he says, well, when, when did he start to get better? And it clicks for him that it was the same hour that Jesus said that his son would live, that his son started to recover and perhaps the fever broke. Not only does he believe now, but his whole household believes. And that's the second sign that we find in the Gospel of John. Here's what I realized this week as I spent time with this story. If we take this sign that we have in chapter 4, that we just read with the royal official and his son, and we compare it to the sign that we covered last week where Jesus was at the wedding in Cana with the disciples and some friends, I think what we see is two different types of faith, two different types of belief modeled for us. Here's what I mean. Think about last week. At the wedding, the disciples believe at the very end of the text because they see, right? They see it with their own eyes that Jesus turned the water into wine. Not only do they see it, I'm sure they get to taste it, right? But they don't believe until they have seen until they have tasted. They know that Jesus did this because they were there, because they saw it. They saw the water going into the jars, and then they saw the wine get pulled out of the jars. And I think that's a good representation or example of belief that comes from the head. Head belief. What I mean by that is is the kind of belief that we have that's gained through weighing evidence, through considering what we can see and touch and taste. It's the kind of belief that we're able to come to using our logic and using our reason and using information that we can find in the world around us. It's, it's a true and genuine belief, right? The disciples really do believe in Jesus because of what they've seen. But the reason they believe is because, is because they saw it. And not only did they see it, they got to taste the wine, and it was some of the best wine that they had ever had. But it's a belief for the disciples in that moment that finds its roots in their head. When I think about that kind of belief, I I think about a scientist who's driven to faith by by looking at the complexities of life around him, right? Or I think about an astrologist who's studying the vastness of the universe and finds himself in a position where suddenly he believes that Jesus is who Jesus says he is. They come to believe through logic, I think we all have beliefs like this in our faith. I think all of us have parts of our faith in Christ that's rooted in our head, rooted in the way that we understand the world around us, rooted in an experience that we know we've had, 
where we know we saw Jesus working and moving in the world around us. And because of that, we believe. But I think this type of belief is is limited, right? It's limited by what we can touch and what we can see and what we can taste and, and what we can understand. It's limited by only what we can wrap our minds around, isn't it? It's the kind of belief that we can put in a box and slip into our pocket because most of the time it's going to be a little bit more tangible and a little bit more measurable for our brains to comprehend. And even though I know we all have parts of our faith that are rooted in this head belief, I think usually it it can't quite get us all the way there. Or at least for me, I feel like it usually it, it can't get me it can't get me all the way there. Which is why I think it makes a ton of sense. It makes a ton of sense for the second sign in the Gospel of John to require a different kind of belief from the royal official. Here again how Jesus responds to the royal official's request for healing for his son and then the conversation that ensues directly after. Starting at verse 47. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my little boy dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him and started on his way. For some reason, I couldn't get that phrase out of my head. Unless you see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's what Jesus says. Well, why does he say that? Well, the last time Jesus performed a sign, that's what it took. That's what it took for the disciples to believe. They didn't believe until they saw it. The only person that thought Jesus could do this was Mary, right? She was the catalyst. So, of course, the logical conclusion for Jesus to draw here is that, well, he's not going to believe until he sees the signs and the wonders. But there's something a little different about the royal official, isn't there? He doesn't just have a faith that's rooted in his head, does he? He has a faith that's also rooted in his heart. He has a faith that's rooted in trusting. Trusting that Jesus is who he says he is. Trusting that Jesus will do what he says he will do. Trusting that Jesus has the power to heal his son before he can see that his son is healed. Jesus says to him, go. Your son will live. And that's all the man needs, isn't it? That... That's all he needs to start a four-day walk back home. That's all he needs to believe. The man takes Jesus at his word and I think shows us a belief that's rooted in the heart. Again, I found myself thinking about cheesy examples this week, but when I was thinking about faith that's rooted in the heart, I thought about being a kid and being at the circus and watching the trapeze artists, right? And they, they have this moment when they're swinging back and forth where they have to let go of the bar that they're holding on to in order to jump and like grab arms with the other artists. But usually they have to let go before they can see the other trapeze artist, right? But they let go knowing, right? Even though they can't see it, 
They let go knowing that they're going to be caught. I thought about a child, and this is the kind of faith that they have in their parents, right? When you see a child raise their hand, reaching for their mom or for their dad, without seeing that they're there, but they, they, just, they just know that they're going to be there, right? They know that their hand is going to be met by the hand of their parent. They trust that their parent will be there. It's a belief that's rooted in the heart. Here's the thing. If, if I'm being honest, I think faith and belief would be a whole lot easier if it was all rooted in our heads. If it was all rooted in what we could understand. If it was all rooted in what we could wrap our minds around. If it was all rooted by what we could get our hands on, right? If every time we could see Jesus turn the water into wine, or we could see the evidence for ourselves, or we could have all the information that we need before we're required to believe or to trust. But if you're like me, that's just, that's not how it works, is it? That's not how faith in Christ works most of the time. Usually we have to be willing to go beyond what we can understand and instead rely on who we believe Jesus is and trust before we can see it and before we can understand it. And usually, I don't know about you, but usually those moments for me come, come when I'm desperate. It's usually in the moments of desperation like we see the religious official and his son, right? It's, it's usually in those moments of desperation where I have to be willing to make that jump. I have to be willing to make that jump from believing with my head to believing with my heart. I have to be willing to trust in Jesus before I know how it's going to work out or before I have the answer that I'm seeking. I have to reach out and take the leap of faith despite not understanding. I was trying to find an example of this this week, and I stumbled across the story of James A. Garfield. And if you're like me, you don't know who that is because I didn't know who that was when I read his name. But it turns out... He was the 20th president of the United States of America. I see some heads nodding, which means you're smarter than me, because I didn't know who that was. He was born in 1831, and his story is really interesting. His story is a story of rags to riches. He grew up deep in poverty, and he ended up sitting in one of the most prestigious seats of the free world, right? He ended up being the president of the United States. But before he was president... When he was 16 and looking for meaning and purpose and probably a paycheck, he found a job working on a canal boat in Cleveland. His dream was to be on a boat that was in the ocean, but nobody would take him, so he took a job on a canal boat. And it didn't take long for him and others on the boat to realize that he really wasn't cut out for this, for this type of work. He only made it six weeks on the boat. And in those six weeks... He fell overboard 14 times. Four, that's like almost, I mean, that's close to a couple times a week, almost two, three times. I mean, that's crazy. 14 times in six weeks. And the last time he fell overboard, the 14th time, he almost lost his life. It was a rainy night. He was woken up out of a deep sleep to go and take his turn, take his post at the bow of the boat. It was his turn to be on watch. Can't you picture it? A 16-year-old that's exhausted, half awake, can barely keep his eyes open, still in a fog, getting pulled out of a deep sleep, and going and standing on the front of the boat for his shift 
entrusted with the care of the whole ship for the next couple of hours. He began to uncoil a rope to steady the boat because they were coming up on a lock. And as he was uncoiling the rope, again, I just picture him like half asleep, right? Pulling this rope out. He realized that part of it was stuck in a crevice on the edge of the deck. And he did what I'm sure I would do if I was exhausted and at the front of a boat. Instead of looking for where the rope was stuck, he just started pulling on it. He started pulling on it to try and get it free. And it wouldn't budge, and it wouldn't budge, so he pulled harder and harder and harder, and finally, it freed. And where do you think he went? He went overboard. Yeah. Before he could realize what was happening, his momentum carried him straight into the water. So he fell into the black water. The sound of his splash was muffled by the rain, but not like it really mattered because everybody was asleep anyway. And the boat just kept gliding through the water. And so there he is in the water, and he, he thinks, well, this is, this is the end. This is it. I shouldn't have taken the job on the boat. I should have looked for where the rope was stuck instead of just pulling on it, but, but this is it. He was desperate, clearly, right? I mean, he was, he was desperate. He'd take anything that he could get. And as he was treading water, somehow his hand brushed up against a rope. So he started to pull on it. And as he pulled on it, he realized that he thought it may just hold. And so he pulled harder on it. And he put a little more trust into it. And he ended up pulling himself all the way back up onto the deck. And when he got back up onto the deck, he was dripping with water and he was freezing. And this time he looked for the end of the rope, right? And what he saw blew his mind. Because he realized that the only reason that rope had held his weight was because it was stuck in a crevice on the edge of the deck. A crevice that, as he puts it, had no business holding his body weight. So he did what I think any of us would maybe try to do. He pulled the rope out of the crevice, and then he tried to throw it back into the crevice to see if he could get it to catch again. And he couldn't. He couldn't explain it. He couldn't make sense of it. The rope shouldn't have held his weight. It shouldn't have stayed stuck in the crevice. But it did. He never could wrap his mind around how that had happened, how the rope had gotten stuck in the first place. And so he ended up saying that it was, that it was a miracle. He ended up saying that it wasn't the rope that saved him, but God. And it was, ended up being a huge part of his testimony. Two years later, he was baptized and gave his life to Christ. But that was the very beginning of his faith journey. Here's my guess. And I only think this is true because of me. But I, I'm guessing that there is at least one area of your life where you can give up that desire to have it all figured out. I'm guessing that all of us have at least one area of our life where we can give up that desire to try and have it all figured out. There's at least one area of our life where we can move away from that, even if it's uncomfortable, and instead begin to lean into that heart belief that we see out of the royal official. That willingness to trust and believe before we see or understand what's going to happen, before we have the whole picture. I don't know, maybe, maybe you are like the royal official or maybe you are like James Garfield and you do find yourself this morning in a place of desperation. Maybe you find yourself in a place where you feel like you've tried everything else, that you've fought to maintain a sense of, a sense of control 
and you're starting to realize that that the only way through whatever it is that you're facing is just to simply trust. It's just to simply trust. To know that you don't have it figured out and you never will, but you're going to make the decision to trust in Jesus and trust in who he is and lean into that heart belief. Or maybe you don't find yourself in a place of desperation, but you know that this is what it's going to take for you to get to that next level of faith in Christ. That you're going to have to become more willing to stop trying to have it all figured out and instead lean into trusting who Jesus is and what Jesus says he will do in your life. Wherever you find yourself, whatever it is for you, I think, I think the question that we're asking this morning is how do we make the jump from head to heart? How do we make that jump with our faith from head to heart? How do we lean into that trust, that trust that can only come from our hearts in who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing in the world around us? And, and I really, I think the answer is this, and it's really simple. Just grab the rope. I really do think that's the answer. There's no magic button. There's no magic phrase. There's nothing I can tell you that'll make it less scary. I think all of us just have to make the decision to grab the rope. Even in the dark, even in the storm, even in the water, even when we can't see what's holding the end of the rope, even if we don't know if we have the strength to pull ourselves up. When you're desperate, when you have nowhere else to go, or when you're just craving to be just a little bit closer to Christ. Friends, I I think the answer is to just grab the rope. And, And when we do, when we do grab the rope, and we do pull ourselves up, when we trust in the words of Jesus like the royal official, I think what we'll find is is even though maybe we couldn't see it in the beginning that God was holding the other end all along. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey friends, I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you for tuning in to our message this week in The Gathering. I hope you found it meaningful and life-giving. Of course, you're welcome to join us any week at 10 a.m. on Sundays, either here in this space or on our live stream for worship. And of course, you can check us out on our website at www.bluffparkumc.org to find out more about who we are as a church, what we have going on, and how you can be a part of that. Feel free to reach out and contact us with any questions or concerns you may have. We'd love to hear from you. We hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next time.